This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Delighted you're joining us this week. If you're not already a subscriber, please sign up wherever you do get your podcasts. This week... It's Biden 2024. Yes, like every president before him for the last half century or more, Joe Biden wants four more years in the White House. As we record this on Tuesday, it's just a few hours since the president announced his re-election campaign. The three-minute video with which he launched his bid was, I think it's fair to say, a most unusual message for an incumbent, but one that reflects the fact that Americans are pretty skeptical about the case for another Biden term. This was absolutely no morning in America story of a country renewed and optimistic for another four years. It was hardly a mention of any supposed achievements in Biden's first term. It said the tone was one of foreboding. Once again, Biden's warning us about the dangers of the extremism of his opponents, the so-called MAGA Republicans, he likes to call them, that he says are out to destroy American democracy. But without mentioning Donald Trump, it was clear that the president and his team have decided that focusing on the former president and his supporters is the surest way to win re-election. With his own approval ratings in the doldrums and most Americans telling pollsters they don't want him to run again, that's hardly surprising. So what are Biden's re-election prospects? First term, which has underscored how much the progressive left dominates his party, with radical measures on public spending, green energy, and cultural issues like race and gender. Is the country really ready for that again? Or will fear of the alternative prove successful for Biden as it was in 2020? To talk about all this, I'm joined this week by one of our most astute analysts of democratic politics, Rui Teixeira. Marie made little news last year by leaving the Democratic-aligned think tank, the Center for American Progress, and joining the conservative-leaning American Enterprise Institute as a senior fellow. He continues to describe himself as a social democrat, but the move reflected the growing disillusionment he's expressed in recent years with the direction of the, of the Democratic Party. In his 2002 book, co-authored with John Judas to the Emerging Democratic Majority, Teixeira argued that big demographic shifts, like that of professional highly educated classes to the left and the rising preponderance of ethnic minorities, was creating a big democratic advantage. And Democrats may have won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections, but Teixeira believes that the Democrats' sharp move to the left on cultural issues especially, an embrace of the woke agenda, is turning off many voters. His views might best be summed up, in fact, in the title of the Substack newsletter he helped found, The Liberal Patriot. And Marie Teixeira joins me now. Marie Teixeira, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Well, thanks for having me. So it's an auspicious day. Let's start with that. There's lots to talk about. We're recording this on Tuesday. President Biden announced just this morning in a video his plan to run for re-election and his bid for re-election. I think it's fair to say it wasn't a kind of a typical re-election launch. I mean, A, it was given by video, not in person. And B, the message of it was kind of a rather foreboding one. It wasn't, here's another great four years we can look forward to. It was, here's how we're going to stop the world from collapsing around us. What did you make of the launch? I think his announcement was very interesting in many ways. Of course, it was on video. It's a little bit different in that sense. But beyond that, I thought how he was essentially positioning his candidacy to be president again. It's really not, I'm great and I've done great things. It's more like my opponent and his party are really bad. So he basically wants to make the 2024 election into a referendum on his opponent, which is how he ran in 2020, right? But at that time, his opponent was the president. Now he's the president. 
And he's trying to make this election, when he's been president for four years, into a referendum not on him and his administration, but rather his opponent and how horrible his party is and how they will bring us to the brink of, if not into fascism, if they're managed to depose him. So I think that's kind of interesting, right? I mean, that's pretty unusual approach for a president who basically incumbents, you know, they may not want to, but they really feel they have to run on their record and convince people it was a good thing and there's enough good stuff there that you should reelect them again. But that doesn't appear to be the approach he's taking. Now, he's surrounded, obviously, by very sophisticated pollsters and consultants. They must think, presumably, that is the message that will resonate. As you say, it's kind of different when you're running as the incumbent to run on the record of your opponent. It's one thing to run when your opponent is the president, when you're the incumbent. I mean, but can it work? Do you think they're right? Do you think this is a message that will resonate with American voters? Well, I think it's certainly possible, and especially if his opponent is Trump. I think it will be the easiest to implement that sort of referendum on my opponent kind of strategy. That said, it's not going to be easy. His approval rating at this point is in the low 40s. It's been in the low 40s forever. Historical data indicate that presidents tend to get the percentage of the vote that corresponds to their approval rating. (laughs) So his approval rating is still in the low 40s on election day next year. It would be quite a feat to nevertheless get reelected because it would mean a lot of people who disapprove of you wind up voting for you. Well, why would they do that? I think that's where the strategy comes in. They would do that because even though they at least somewhat disapprove of your presidency, they dislike your opponent even more and are scared of what they're going to do. So I think that's the strategy behind it. And it's not crazy. It's just unusual and a little bit precedent breaking. And this strategy also suggests, doesn't it, that they don't have much faith in the kind of this very radical agenda that they've been following in the last couple of years. They don't have much faith of it electorally. You know, we've had this huge increase in spending, big, big, big support of the green agenda, big embrace of the kind of woke cultural agenda on race and gender and transgender issues. Not a word of that, although in many ways those have been the most striking characteristics of this administration. Not really a word of that in the case for re-election. That doesn't suggest they think the American people like it all that much. I agree with that, Jerry. I think it's just the case that the policies they've elected to pursue, while some of it is popular, some of it is not, they have put a lot of emphasis on sort of equity and woke issues and identitarian issues, which are not particularly popular with voters, particularly the median swing voter who they might want to reach. They have spent a lot of money, which has at least some connection to inflation, which is incredibly unpopular, right? I mean, his ratings on the economy are still terrible, and they're terrible to a large extent because of the high inflation that's bedeviled his first two years, and now it's beginning to abate, but it's still viewed as the biggest problem people face today in the country. So none of that's popular. You might ask, well, okay, but isn't everyone for doing something about climate change? And isn't he doing something about climate change? Well, the fact of the matter is, while people think something should be done about climate change, they're not necessarily completely on board with spending a gazillion dollars on it and making everyone get an electric vehicle and basically having interventions into the grid and energy system that might wind up increasing prices. And it's just not that salient for them, particularly for working class voters. I recently wrote about this. If you look at what working class voters are concerned about, climate change is way, way down at the bottom of the list. And yet, if you look at the administration's economic strategy and the target of much of its spending, that's clearly what it's all about. So this is extremely popular with the Democrats' liberalish college-educated base voters or biggest supporters at this point. But it's not that popular with a lot of the working class voters they need to reach, particularly in key states. 
So I think that is definitely a vulnerability. So that's one reason why perhaps Biden is not spending a lot of time at this point talking about how we're fighting climate change and isn't that great. I mean, they have made some effort, of course, going around the country to tout some factory openings and some infrastructure buildouts and so on. But it's interesting that he didn't talk much about that because that is sort of their theory of the case, if there is one, about the economy is, yeah, okay, people think it sucks now because inflation's too high, but that's because you know we haven't really succeeded in implementing enough of the investments that we've made from the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Bill and the CHIPS Act and so on. And as that comes online and economic dynamism produces itself, right, and communities are lifted up, uh, it'll be morning again in America and then everything will be great. So, but, you know, obviously they're hedging their bets on that. They don't 100% believe that's going to happen because if they did believe it was going to happen, they would tout their achievements, right? They would assume that his approval rating is going to crack 50% by election day because people are so happy with how the economy is doing. Evidently, they're not so sure about that. And that's why they're trying to turn, again, this election into a referendum on his opponent. We're going to take a break there. When we come back, we'll have more with Rita Scherer talking about Joe Biden and his re-election bid, but also about the state of the Democratic Party and our politics in general. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Reed Teixeira of the American Enterprise Institute, and we're talking about the shifting trends in politics for both the Democratic and Republican parties. I want to talk more, of course, about the working class, the seeming abandonment of the Democratic Party by working class voters or the abandonment of working class voters by the Democratic Party, whichever way you want to put it, because you've written a lot about this and I really want to dig into that. But just quickly, still on the immediate Biden issue and the Biden re-election issue, we're in an extraordinary position. The latest polls just over the weekend showed that only a quarter of Americans want Biden to run again for president and including just under half, according to one poll at the weekend, of Democrats wanting to run for president. I can't recall a time when an incumbent president inspired so little enthusiasm among his own party's supporters. Yeah, no, it's pretty remarkable. And, you know, there's other interesting data points, too, that just came out in a related data that came out in a Wall Street Journal poll. If you basically run Biden against not a particular Republican, but a generic Republican, he actually loses quite soundly. Whereas if you look at previous presidencies, that tended not to be the case. It all speaks to extraordinary vulnerability. We know if you ask people why you don't think Biden should run, that typically tends to be because he's too old. That's the biggest factor. And it all paints a picture of a president for whom there is very little enthusiasm. And again, Jerry, this just gets right back to their strategy, right? If people think he's too old and they don't approve of his presidency and they're they're not really enthusiastic about him running again and they'd rather have someone else, well, what do you do? You basically say, you know, this is classic Biden line. Don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to my opponent, right? That's the standard line. I think that's the strategy. What do you make of this age issue? It does seem to be obviously the biggest concern for voters, completely understandable. He's not only 80 years old, but I mean, charitably speaking, he's not a youthful 80 years old. He seems to be in physical health, but mentally speaking, you know, we've all seen these 
long, awkward, almost embarrassing kind of periods where he can't find the right words or he says the wrong words. He can't remember what he's saying. He does seem to be kind of out of it. He submits himself to very little scrutiny. He's given very, very few interviews, very few press conferences. His entire schedule seems to be operate from like nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. Then it's over. And then again, we're six years away from the end of a second Biden presidential term. How big a deal do you think it's going to be in the campaign, the age issue? I think it's going to be a pretty big deal. The question is how big a deal and, you know, how badly it's going to cut against Biden. I mean, it clearly is not exactly a point in its favor. It's an obvious issue to begin with before this thing even starts. I think what would really turbocharge it is incidents on the campaign trail, which are highly publicized, where he does stumble in a big way, physically, mentally, or whatever. And I think that will increase the salience of it. You know, they know that's a big risk. I mean, they know the guy has lost a few miles off his fastball and he hasn't been subjected to much scrutiny. But when you campaign, you are subjected to scrutiny and things could happen. And that could really redound to the benefit of his opponent. Now, we don't know, of course, how well, I mean, if Trump is the opponent, which seems more likely than not at this point, you know, he's not exactly a you know, a youthful guy either. He doesn't come across that way. I mean, you can say lots of things about Donald Trump, but I don't want to say he's a youthful 76 years old or whatever he is, but he certainly doesn't seem to be cognitive, particularly cognitively challenged in the way that Biden is. Well, I think that's fair. You know, and Trump is so wacky that it might be harder to discern anyway. But yeah, no, I think he projects a sort of almost preternatural energy, you know, like from some strange source somewhere out there in the galaxy that keeps him going. You know, that's what voters see. And I think that does make a difference. That said, he's still 76. He might stumble. We'll see. But yeah, if Biden ran against someone who was genuinely relatively youthful like DeSantis, I mean, that would be a stronger contrast. So nobody seems to take DeSantis seriously anymore, though. This, this month's story, I'm sure everybody gets their time in the cycle and that'll probably come around again. Let me talk about the internal politics of the Democratic Party, because it is interesting. You've got a couple of declared challengers, Marianne Williamson, sort of slightly kind of eccentric, maybe kind of candidate. But Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is out there. Clearing his candidacy, seems to be running on a very kind of anti-establishment populist, uh, and that's putting it, I suppose, rather charitably, I mean, especially on the vaccine stuff, I think most people think he's kind of way beyond where the sort of bounds of reality kind of stop. But he's challenging. One poll, at least last week, had him registering 14%, I think, of Biden voters from 2020. I mean, whether it's his challenge or whether there's a potential other challenge out there, how serious is the threat to Biden in the Democratic primary? I don't think it's serious at all, barring shocks to the campaign system like Biden falling flat in his face at some point. Um, I think right now these are just nuisance candidates. I don't think he's in any trouble at all. And I don't sense any interest out there in any plausible alternative candidate who wants to run against him. The party, for better or worse, is pretty united at the elite level, particularly around basically taking advantage of the power of incumbency and getting a Democrat reelected again. I don't take it too seriously at all. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's the way I see it now. And Biden, it does seem, I mean, even though in 2020 he kind of ran as the sort of voice of reason, the experienced candidate who's going to kind of restore normality, he does seem to have been a pretty effective vehicle for policies that we would not necessarily have associated with him. And that presumably the kind of progressive wing of the party where you might expect to see a challenge normally to perhaps if the president's unpopular, they're not going to do that, are they? Because he's basically, he's kind of been a very, very reliable vessel for most of what they want to do. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, that is kind of his superpower that he is a vessel into which all segments of the Democratic Party can pour their priorities. And he sort of tries to do a weighted average among them and and move in the direction the wind is blowing within the party. So he's responsive in that sense. The way I frequently think about this is, 
you know, you look at other presidents and frequently they put their own stamp on the party, right? This sort of there's Obama Democrats, there's Reagan Republicans and what have you. I mean, I think in this case, it's more like the party has put a stamp on him, right? And I think he's the ideal kind of person for that because I think his ideological uh, priors, such as they are, are not much. He's always been a creature of the party. He doesn't really want to confront or fight with any particular segment of the party. And since the wind was blowing from the progressive left, he responded to that, and he did a good deal of what they wanted. And I think they're not delighted with him, but they're happy enough that he is their creature, as it were. So they're not going to put up a big fight about him being the candidate. One final question on Biden specifically before we move on to those broader issues with the Democratic Party, which is the Hunter Biden story. And again, I don't necessarily want to ask you about the specifics of Hunter. You may or may not know or be interested in that. You know, this is a story, it seems to me, that it was widely dismissed when it first came up. You know, and I, even I, I mean, I'm, you know, I was fairly skeptical when it came up in 2020. Was it really a big deal? It seems that the more we learn about it, whether it is the latest allegation from a whistleblower in the IRS that he's being protected for political reasons whether it's all we learn about some of his business dealings and the way he was peddling influence. Again, this is a story that Biden got a pass on in 2020. That does seem to me, both from the point of view of the press, I think being a little bit embarrassed about the way they handled it last time around, and from the fact that we're just learning more and there is this federal investigation going on out there. How big a vulnerability do you think this could be for him? I guess I don't think it's particularly serious. I mean, I think the Hunter Biden story now is so convoluted that your typical voter isn't going to pay much attention to it. And, you know, basically be able to figure out whether and to what extent Biden himself might be guilty in this cover up and to what extent the media has helped him and so on. I mean, my personal view is that there definitely was a there there and they had a lot of collaborative support in killing the story when it happened during the election campaign last time. But I just really doubt that this is a clear enough example of malpractice that you're median voter is going to get too exercised about it. And in fact, it's enough of an inside baseball kind of story that if I was running the Republican campaign, I wouldn't bother to make too much of this. This is the kind of thing that excites certain elements of the Republican base. And it's a story they like to tell, but I don't think that's really their sweet spot in terms of reaching the maximum number of voters. But hey, you know, you get what you pay for. I'm not a consultant, but that's just my view. One of those things that somebody said the other day that's, you know, that Republicans will be very, very focused on and Democrats will, will actually not really care very much and independents probably won't really register with them. But let's move on to the broader demographic and political trends. You, of course, famously wrote the book, you and John Judas, the genuinely seminal work in 2002 on the emerging Democratic majority, those demographic changes that were going on and that were favoring the Democrats. Now, you know, on one level, obviously, you can look at the popular vote in presidential elections. Seven of the last eight presidential elections have been won the popular vote by Democrats, that does suggest there's a lot to what you said. But at the same time, there's also been this continuously narrowly divided country, whether it's in presidential elections, you know, with the single exception probably of 2008, we've had narrow elections, we've had back and forth in midterm elections and congressional elections, it continues to seem to be pretty close to a 50-50 country. So what happened to that emerging Democratic majority, do you think? Well, again, I have written a fair amount about that. But I think the... Um crispest way to put this is there was always a working class, particular white working class, Achilles heel in the Democratic strategy that became known as the emerging Democratic majority, the rising American electorate. And John Judas and I tried to talk about this in our book, but it was widely ignored. Given the demographic structure of the country, even though, for example, the white working class vote was declining as a share of voters, it was nevertheless huge it was super huge in a lot of key states. And if Democrats started losing more and more support among that demographic, essentially would cancel out 
all the other advantages they were deriving from demographic and other changes in the country. So therefore, they needed to keep, if not a majority share, a solid minority share of the vote that was relatively stable and didn't continue declining. And basically what we saw over time is that they could not do that. Obama did pretty well in 2008. He actually improved among white working class voters. There was a lot of shifts in his favor that were quite impressive, even in difficult states for the Democrats. But it all went south starting in 2010. And by the time you got to 2016, Trump was able to be elected president on the back of shifts of white working class voters toward the Republicans. And now since then, we've actually seen white working class voters to some extent joined by non-white working class voters and being unenthusiastic about the Democrats. This is particularly the case among Hispanics. We also see it among Asians and Blacks. And so you can now cut the American electorate literally by college, non-college. And it tells you a lot about what's going on in the country. If you look at the trial heats of Biden against Trump or Biden against DeSantis, it's really striking that who comes out on top depends on how big the deficit for Biden is among the working class and how big his advantage is among the college educated. Now, the working class is bigger than the college educated. So you can like lose the working class by six points. But therefore, if you do that, you need to carry the college educated by 10 points or something like that. Right. I'm just making up these numbers. But you get the idea. The Republicans are now in a, a loose quantitative sense, the party of the working class. So to get back to the Biden 2024 campaign, what he needs to do is make sure that deficit among the working class is not so large as so going to cancel out his probable advantage among college educated voters. And we'll see if he's able to do that. But that, in, you know, sort of in a very thumbnail kind of way is a little bit what the campaign will be about. And back to the emerging Democratic majority, that was always what the Democrats, I think, did not well understand about the opportunities they had in the early 2000s, that it, it did depend on being attentive to what John Judas and I call in our forthcoming book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Great Divide, that's opened up in the country between the college and non-college voters, particularly in key areas of the country, in the heartland, in rural, small town, and exurban America. I mean, this is the Democrats, the working class people in these areas no longer see the Democrats as representing their interests in most ways and looking down on them and in cultural alien. And that goes along, of course, with the move of the Democrats toward cultural radicalism of various kinds, uh, particularly in the teens and the early 20s. So this is not exactly what we called for in the emerging Democratic majority. We recommended, of course, a progressive centrism. But I don't think this is really what we had in mind. How effective do you think of Republicans being at picking up on that white working class vote? I'm particularly interested, obviously, in Ron DeSantis. And we saw last November that extraordinary victory by DeSantis, a 20-point margin in Florida in what's usually a kind of a purple state. And I'm wondering what you think, what the lessons of that are in terms of what the Republicans are able to do to appeal to those and how effectively either DeSantis or Trump or anybody can be in taking that extraordinary success in appealing to that broad array of voters, how they can do that nationally. Yeah, well, how they can do that nationally is another question. But we do actually talk in our book about the Florida situation as being an exemplar of how Republicans can, as you say, turn a swing state into a pretty solid red state by virtue of taking advantage of democratic vulnerabilities on cultural issues and governing well and effectively and not treating Hispanic voters like they were, quote, people of color, unquote, but rather working class voters who want to get ahead in the world and aren't particularly culturally radical. So I think DeSantis was able to make that sale to the voters in Florida. He carried Hispanic voters by 13 points, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, will that play nationally? We'll see. I think there are a lot of pressures on DeSantis and the Republican Party in general to not only take advantage of democratic vulnerabilities on cultural issues, but let's just say to go a little farther than might be electorally optimal on those cultural vulnerabilities. I mean, DeSantis has become ever more 
aggressive on some of this stuff. As time has gone on, he's you know basically thinking about running for president. Probably signing the six-week abortion ban was not a great look for him, though it's not as fatal an error as I think a lot of Democrats tend to think, but it's not exactly a point in his favor. So there's a way in which there's a good chunk of the Republican Party who are very culturally radical themselves, in a sense, against the cultural radicalism of the Democrats. And if you play too much to that, I think it can become a bit of a liability. I think the second thing about that is, yeah, so Republicans are a working class party now in sort of, on average, they're probably culturally more closer to a lot of these working class voters than the Democrats. That's an advantage for them. But what is the program, idea, approach, whatever, that you know is going to redound to the benefit of working class voters in any more material sense? In other words, I don't think you can or should just run on cultural issues. You should run on sort of an economic kitchen table to use an abuse term program that that people are going to see as really benefiting them. And as a contrast to the Democrats, and I think that's something there's not a lot of agreement on. Look, when Trump ran in 2020, he didn't even have a platform. <laughs> so uh, this is this is a problem, and I think it will be a problem for them in the election. We, you know, we can call it whatever you want to call it, sort of economic populism, whatever you want to call it. But I'm interested in what you mean by that, because there is, as you know, this very lively debate going on among Republicans, among conservatives, about the extent to which the party's obviously traditionally been pro-big business, pro-tax cuts, that famous coalition of social conservatives, evangelicals, national security hardliners and sort of big business and, you know, pro-tax cuts, sort of limited government approach. But again, with this changing coalition of the Republican base towards a more working class coalition, does that mean actually that that people like J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley, who seem to be saying, you know what, no, maybe we shouldn't be quite, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't just constantly talk about tax cuts and deregulation and helping business and maybe reforming social security and Medicare and Trump has campaigned heavily on this too. Maybe we need policies that are specifically a little bit more like almost traditional democratic or sort of what we used to call kind of liberal policies, favoring domestic industry, favoring particularly directed efforts at the working class. Is there a practical agenda there, you think, that would actually help Republicans make further inroads into that working class vote? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a practical agenda there. There are exactly what the details of it are. There is, as you say, very little agreement on, even among people who advocate for it. But I do think they need something like that. I mean, given that they now are much more of a working class party, uh, there's just not a lot of faith among these voters that sort of unleashing the business community and cutting taxes and so on will ultimately trickle down to them and life will be great. I think that ship has sailed. And I think Republicans are now trying to figure out, given that that ship has sailed, do they try to run and outfit another ship and go catch it to uh, turn it around to take a metaphor to the breaking point? Or are they going to try to do something different? And I think something different is clearly what's called for here. But exactly what that is, I think they have to work out. But there are ways in which Republicans should be able to pursue an economic agenda that it's not simply anti-government or tax cutting or deregulation, but nevertheless enshrines conservative principles in terms of the approach to the market and the approach to the importance of family and community and so on. I think people like American Compass and American Affairs, senators like Hawley and Rubio and J.D. Vance and so on, they're trying to think through all this stuff, but nobody's got the formula yet, but I think that's a formula that has to be figured out if they hope to succeed. And again, you know, you get what you pay for. I'm not a consultant, but that's my view. What about abortion, Rui? You mentioned that briefly in the context of Florida and possibly, you know, the six-week ban maybe going a little too far. In terms of the white working class vote, again, we're sort of thinking crosswise here because we always tend to think about the Republican base as being animated by sort of social conservatives, evangelicals. Now, some of them are white working class, presumably many of them are. Because I was very struck also in Biden's launch video this morning, there were visual references to abortion and the Roe v. Wade case and keeping abortion legal. Is there a kind of 
you know, there's this search for a middle ground. Is it 15 weeks, six weeks, whatever? How big a challenge and a vulnerability is it for Republicans if they don't get this right? I think it's a pretty big vulnerability. I think Democrats can overestimate the nature of that vulnerability, sort of reasoning from the 2022 election and from the 2023 Wisconsin Supreme Court race that it's essentially a magic bullet. You can always tar Republicans as wanting to ban abortion entirely, and you can always run on abortion rights and therefore clean their clock. I think that's questionable. You look at Brian Kemp in Georgia, you look at DeWine in Ohio, you look in a lot of other places. It's not always the case, and especially in a given high turnout election, that abortion issue is going to cut so heavily against the Republicans, they will automatically be defeated. That said, it just makes sense to run on the abortion issue and have a profile on the abortion issue that is closer to that of the median voter, which is that abortion should generally be legal in the first trimester and legal only with exceptions after that, which is back to DeSantis. That was the original bill he signed a while ago. Six weeks is just not popular. Will it kill a Republican presidential candidate? I don't know, but it's not a point in their favor. I mean, I was thinking about this last night. I was thinking, you know, well, let's say DeSantis is a nominee. What does he do? Well, I think he would have to run on leave it to the states, right? If he accedes to pressure from some of his base to advocate for a nationwide six-week ban, I think that could kill him. <laughs> but, you know, presumably smarter than that. In any way, he may never get the nomination. You mentioned earlier this striking advances that the Republicans have made with ethnic minorities, particularly with Hispanics, Asian-Americans too, although a much smaller share of the population. But the Hispanic picture does seem dramatic. You mentioned DeSantis winning them comfortably in Florida last year. We saw Trump, I think, to a lot of people's surprise, making progress among Hispanics. We saw tremendous moves from Hispanics towards Republicans in places like Texas, close to the border and elsewhere. But this does seem to be a pretty well-established phenomenon now. What's driving it, first of all, and how far do you think it can actually go? And could it actually be a big factor in that sort of equation that you gave us of, you know, how much of the white working class vote versus how much of minority vote that the, the Democrats can expect to continue to get? How could it upset the political calculus? Well, you know, I do think the Democrats are to some extent reaping the rewards from or the anti-rewards from having conceived of Hispanics as a group that is people of color, mostly concerned with immigration, are struggling to make their way in this racist society that is America and losing track of the fact that Hispanics supported Democrats, not because of any of that stuff, because they thought they were generally friendly to immigrant-based populations and that they were concerned with providing opportunities for a better life for the Hispanic population. They were sympathetic to their desire for good jobs, education, health care, and so on. This is a population that's generally fairly sympathetic to a, a relatively active role for government. But what they didn't sign up for is the way the Democrats have evolved, and they didn't, didn't like being treated as a party that just cares about immigration and doesn't care about illegal immigration. They didn't like the idea that, you know, they needed to get on board with this whole race essentialist agenda about America, because he's basically an upwardly mobile patriotic constituency that's just looking to better themselves, their lives, their families, their communities. And the more Democrats seem to be somewhat detached from that and concerned with other issues, right, having other priorities, I think it, it has not gone down well with them. Even places like Texas are particular issues like resource extraction, people working in resource extraction and border Security, you feel like Democrats could care less about their jobs. You, know, you have the socialism issue in Florida. I mean, there's just a bunch of stuff that's come together that has tarnished the image of Democrats among this constituency and turned a lot of Hispanic moderates and especially conservatives away from their sort of automatic pro-democratic voting behavior to maybe making their behavior more in line with their underlying ideology and view of the world. 
So that's, I think, why it's happened and how it could definitely undercut the Democrats' political strategy for 2024. I mean, again, looking at that very broad working class, college-educated division, Hispanics basically are heavily working class constituency, 75 to 80%. So if they move additionally toward the Republicans, that just increases the Democrats' overall deficit among working class voters. It doesn't mean the Hispanic working class voters are going to vote exactly like white working class voters, but if they start voting more like 55-45 instead of 65-35, that makes a huge difference. And we can see that in some of the uh, sort of horse race polls that have come out. It's a little bit hard to poll Hispanics. These samples within these polls are not large, but it is striking to me how persistently DeSantis, for example, is running either very small deficits or even slight advantages among the Hispanic subsamples of these polls. Same thing is true with Trump to a lesser extent. And that's fascinating because Democrats are supposed to carry this group by like at least 25 points. <laughs> and when they're only carrying them by five to 10 or even slightly losing them, that's a pretty big change. So I think that it is a point of vulnerability and it just reinforces the overall sort of class fissure in the Democrats' constituencies these days. Final question to you, Again, you've written a lot about this. I'd love to get your latest take on it. You know, we have seen this pretty remarkable kind of elite-driven, what some of us call cultural revolution in the last decade or so, this emphasis on identity politics, this idea, sort of self-lacerating idea about America, that America is a terrible country, that it should kind of disown most of its history, that it's fundamentally racist, white oppression, flawed. We've got to bend all of our efforts at the political, economic, cultural, social level towards addressing this fundamental iniquity in America. This really is pretty revolutionary stuff, and it does seem to have reached quite far into political and cultural and economic circles. I resist using the word woke. I'm not a big fan of the word woke, but this is the sort of so-called woke revolution. Have we seen that peak now, do you think? I mean, because of the kind of political backlash that we've seen, because of the rise, because of these demographic shifts in politics you're talking about with many more people voting Republican because they're unhappy with this, or do you think this is still the regnant ideology that's going to continue to kind of drive political and cultural conversation in this country for some time to come? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, my view is generally that you have to look at woke whether we've reached peak or not in several different ways. One is among sort of the general population, where I think it probably has peaked a bit. I think among retail politicians, there's some desire to back away from it because they see some of the liabilities. However, I think institutionally, and I would include within a lot of the institutions that feed the Democratic Party, I'm not so sure it's peaked or at any rate declined much. I think these people are entrenched. I think they're ideologically committed to it. I think follow the money. I think a lot of people have positions and power that, in fact, determined by their allegiance to the so-called social justice revolution. And I think that they are going to continue to push these issues and they are not going to back down and it's going to be hard to dislodge them. And because it's hard to dislodge them, it's hard to mitigate their influence on the Democratic Party and its image. So I think back to your original question in a way, I mean, one reason why Biden wants to run against how awful Trump is, is he doesn't want a lot of focus on the ways in which the party and his administration have become associated with a lot of these boutique and not particularly popular cultural issues. He wants to instead portray his opponent as a fascist who is going to ruin the country and take away your rights and so on. He doesn't want a lot of discussion of the ways in which the administration has pursued a sort of whole set of relatively unpopular, wokish policies. But this is a delicate dance for them, right? Because it's a target-rich environment for the Republicans on this stuff, and they are going to bring it up, and maybe it won't be enough just to change the subject to how awful your opponent is. I think that's going to be part of the interaction and dance of the 2024 campaign. The 
perfect symmetrical note on which to end the conversation, Rita Chair, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for Free Expression this week. I'll be back next week with another examination of a big issue that's shaping the way we live. Until then, thanks for joining us and goodbye. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.